Okay, so tonight, as we continue through the Bible, we are going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We'll be starting there. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We just went through three chapters of David and his military triumphs, which were uh, got some great insight on those uh, chapters for sure. But tonight, as we go forward in chapter 21, we're not doing so much with young David and the establishment of his kingdom. We're dealing with events that are later on in his life, in fact, the very end of his life. And there's great insight for us as we look at these chapters 21 and 22 tonight. We begin with the census, pretty famous story. We just studied this not that long ago in 2 Samuel, and we'll get another perspective on it tonight as we go forward. In. So chapter 21, verse 1, we read this, that in the latter time of David's life, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, his commander, and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord, the king, are, are there, they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Parenthetical thought, 2 Samuel tells us in chapter 24, it was about a 10-month journey to do this. Verse 5, then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I've sinned greatly because I've done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself, either three years of famine... Three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man, of a man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying Jerusalem, he looked down and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroyed, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, uh, be upon my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Now, in the record in 2 Samuel of this account, we're told that God moved David to take the census. So it gives us one of those things where you go like, well, which was it? Was it God the Father or was it 
Satan, who did this, and what's the background to it? So first of all, let's harmonize the scripture on these two passages like Bible answer man. God the Father never tempts anyone. We're told in the book of James, let no one ever say they're tempted by God. So first of all, we need to clarify right away in the nature of God, he would never tempt you into sin. We're told in the book of James that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And of course, we have a sinful nature, and Jesus defeated Satan on those three fronts to deliver us from our sinful nature when we respond to Christ and receive the work of the Spirit in our life. So it's impossible for God to lie, and God's light and his no darkness at all, and he's not the tempter. But we also know, truly, and life teaches us that every temptation is a test, right? So when we're tempted and we pass that temptation, we really pass a test. And to him or her who has, more is given. And you find as you pass certain temptations and you move past certain things that maybe had you in bondage previously or recently, and as you turn the corner of those, you get stronger. The more you exercise self-control and discipline toward godliness, for physical exercise profits a little, but godliness profits everything, we're told in Timothy, that you get this compound effect of godliness. As you invest time and energy in the word, in prayer, in, in sacrifice and disciplines of your life, and as you put things in order, you, you begin to make progress and you build momentum. And as you build momentum, you don't want to give it up for some folly and foolishness. And so you get stronger because the Lord gives you strength. That's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to give us strength for victory in sin and in temptation. But let no one ever say that they sinned because the Lord tempted them. We have tests. Until we come to Christ, we have no victory over sin. We might have self-control and the disciplines of Adam and Eve in fallen nature to have certain victories over certain things that don't have that same pull over us as other things will. But, you know, we're all subject to the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. And so... One thing might not take us down, but something will take us down. And we're told in the Bible that to be guilty of one thing is to be reckoned guilty of all. We just did a study recently on that. So we have this sinful nature, and we have no power over it until we come to Christ. But Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So in a New Testament sense, when we receive Christ, we receive victory over sin, over the temptation of the devil, and over the grave, the fear of the grave. But until then, we are a slave to sin. The Bible makes it very clear. He who sins is a slave to sin, and we have no victory over sin, truly all-out victory, until we come to Christ. And even then, it's a battle because we have a sinful nature, and this treasure is in earthen vessels, and we all fall short, and things happen. But we're growing and progressing and getting better, and we're maturing. And the more we pour into those things that build us up in a godly way, the more we move toward that sanctification in our life that God wants to have going from glory to glory. But we come back to this whole dilemma, how this really plays out. So the temp- God's, from God, it's a test. From Satan, it's a temptation. And really, the way it works is all God has to do is remove his protection and power from us and give us over to ourselves. And that's where we're going to have a fall. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray for deliverance from evil. Deliverance from evil this day we pray. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We should all thank the Lord when we give our life to Christ that he wants to deliver us from temptation. He doesn't want us to be 
bound to sin that has dominion and darkness and guilt and depravity over our mind and our life. And that brings death to everything we touch because sin is death. Because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So it's a temptation from the devil to test from God. And in this case, the census to take this count, like why God was moved against this generation of Israel, I don't know, except we know that a lot of people allied themselves with King Saul when he was pursuing David, right? And then eventually a lot of people went to David. Who knows what sin was in the land, and who knows why God allows certain people to be conquered at certain times, ethnically, nationally, in human history, versus other times where he didn't. Who, who can even know such things? He appoints one king and brings on another. But these are his people of covenant, and whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he, they had built up in their covenant an element of wrath unto God. Now, who can say what nations on planet Earth in 2023 are building up an element of wrath under God for policies, laws, things like that, mandates that would be contrary to Christ, his word, and the things of God? Who can know for sure? The great evangelist Billy Graham constantly affirmed that he felt that America was sitting under a huge judgment because of the great freedoms we had, so much of them have now been given over to freedoms of rebellion against the Lord and that we're on the clock. Well, who can know? I mean, that's just Billy Graham speculating. God knows. Only God knows. But in this context, they crossed a line nationally and God was going to judge them. And all he had to do to judge them was let David be David without the Lord. All they had to do, because David had pride. He's an old king. And by the way, older people can be very prideful. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Old people can become prideful and obstinate and rigid. And, and, and the exact opposite of Pastor Chuck used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they won't be broken. And I'm amazed how many people who sat under Pastor Chuck are in their 70s and 80s and are rigid. we got to be Flexible. We've got to be teachable and moldable. We don't want to be dried out clay. We want to be on the potter's wheel being molded and shaped. David had become prideful, very prideful. And the danger of pride is to go from trusting in the Lord as your deliverance and your protector and your provider to trusting in men and the flesh. I don't share this very often, but the first week I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in January of 2000, I had a unique situation where I ended up in the wedding prep room that used to be back, if you're in the pulpit, it's back there to the right behind the wall. And somehow I was there with just Pastor Chuck. I'm I'm with Pastor Chuck. And I was saying, hey, you know, I read the Harvest book, all these amazing things, and wow, these guys. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, you know, Joey, I'm afraid having begun in the spirit, we're seeking to be perfected in the flesh. That's a conversation changer when you're coming on staff with your hero, Pastor Chuck. That's what he said, and the Lord knows that's what he said to me. And that's, I've, I don't forget those words, because I don't think of it so much for anyone else that's in the Harvest book or, you know, the, the legacy of those Calvary pastors. I just think of it when I look in the mirror. I don't want to have them begun in the spirit, end up in the flesh. I don't want to be destroyed by the flesh or trust in the flesh, and neither do you. So the real lesson of this story is God just gave David over to his pride. And that's why I pray every morning for humility and gratitude, first thing. Because I'm walking in humility, and you are too. You're in a place where God can bless you. If you're walking in an attitude of gratitude, you're in a place where God can bless you. Because the opposite is pride and murmuring, and they'll crush you, 
and God is not for that. He's against that, and you're just going to implode on yourself. So humility and gratitude. So the real lesson here with David in the census and how he was moved to do it was just God gave him over his pride. He removed his blessings and grace. He just let it run its course. David gets prideful, takes the census. The judgment on the people that was coming comes upon them. Satan tempted him. They gave in to the temptation. God tested him, and they failed it. That's just the way it worked. And we could say the same thing about Jesus on the cross. Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, we're told that the Father loves us, that he gave us a son, that whoever believes in him would not die, but have everlasting life. The Father put Jesus on the cross. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And part of raise it up. Jesus put himself on the cross. Well, we're told when Judas betrayed Jesus that Satan entered Judas to do so. Satan put Jesus on the cross. But then when Jesus was presented by Pilate to the people, uh, you know, Pilate says, well, what should I do with this man since you want Barabbas? And I crucify, crucify, crucify. They put him on the cross. The people put him on the cross. So you see, there's just things we don't completely get. So just make sure you do get what you do get. Don't ever blame your sin or temptations on the Lord, but only the person in the mirror and accept responsibility for it like David in this text with remorse, repentance, sorrow, and empathy for the people that are affected by your sins and seek to make it right. Let God be true and every man a liar and just know that his ways are so much bigger than ours and we need to trust in him, stay on point, and stay on track. This is an incredible story. Terrifying thought this angel over Jerusalem. It's like a science fiction movie but it's for real there's an alien from another dimension a super holy being that these guys all fall down on their faces with sackcloth and ashes you could almost miss that this is this is like the avenger movies you know where you get the like all those movies where you get all the you know the aliens come you know through the portal and all that stuff that's nothing compared to this because this is real that's just fantasies of men and women this is the real deal and david was humbled, and he even was willing to take the judgment on himself and his descendants, which says a lot about how broken he was once he was confronted on this sin, and he corrected himself with it. Body of Christ, WG, we need to walk in humility, and we need to be very careful that we stay away from pride because Satan wants to always appeal to our pride. And I'm looking at me in the mirror right now. Verse 18, therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan and Ornan looked and saw David and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face on the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen and burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings which have cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. That's a lot of money, by the way. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he, the Lord, answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. This is an amazing story, verse 27. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. 
For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Man, so David and his leadership sees this angel like, I mean, again, who, how can we even grasp this body of Christ? This angel, and like, this is David, the man with a heart for God. This is his leadership. Joab's going like, oh my goodness. You're like, you're like try and picture your Joab. It's like, wow, this mighty general. He, everyone's on their face. They're all seeing it. And this isn't just a small view for a few people. This is over the city. A plague killed 70,000 people in three days. And by the way, when you have full plagues in human history like this, this happens. The Black Plague killed 80% of all of Europe in the 1500s, if you didn't know that. 80% of all the people living in Europe died from the Black Plague, essentially, in a very short window of time. 80% of the population, it took, it took a couple centuries for the population to regroup from the Black Plague during that time. Wow. 70,000 people, it's, it's like, a, you know, when you get a disaster, when you get like an earthquake, like I remember there was an earthquake in China in the early 2000s that killed like 120,000 people. They knew that within a day or two. Like you get disasters that kill over 100,000 people in human history. That's a lot of people. And then you look up and you see this angel of the Lord like this. Oh, it's supernatural body of Christ. It's the day of the Lord. If this doesn't put the fear of the Lord in you to walk the straight and narrow in a holy life, I don't know what would. David was so close with the Lord, all the beautiful things he experienced with the Lord, and he's like, man, I'm done for. Now, at that time, he remember, he brought the ark to Jerusalem as a central place of worship, but the altar and the tabernacle were still in Gibeon. There was two places of worship. So the beauty of this story, all things working together for good, is in David's pride and in the judgment of the 70,000, God is actually moving things to go forward. Once we have the judgment, once we have the repentance, once we have the restoration, now we're going forward to a bigger and better future for the next generation. That's what's going to happen. And our buddy here, Ornan, with the threshing floor, this guy's great. Man, his sons, just picture your boys, your adult boys, if you have them. And everyone's like, this, they're, they're, they're in that movie. This isn't some Hollywood movie in your special you know, pre-purchased seats at Bellaterra. This is really happening. And your adult kids are like, oh. And they see the angel like, oh. And they run and hide, wouldn't you? I just love Ornan, though. He's just like, he keeps threshing. You just never know what people are going to do in a crisis situation, right? And you fall back what you know how to do. I'm going to keep threshing with his angels wiping out tens of thousands of people. And he's like, well, this is, I, this is the way I started the day. This is the way I'm going down today. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. Ornan's threshing. And isn't it interesting that when David shows up, that's when he falls on his face. His respect for the king, the king that God appointed over Israel. It's not the angel that really put the fear in him, which is a side note in the story, parenthetically, but it's actually when he sees David and his respect for the king, his respect for the king, this great king David. And this whole thing goes over, we're like, hey, I'll give you this, you can offer that. And then David made that famous statement, I'll not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. The beauty of this story, the apex of this story is, in the post-flood world, after the ice age of about 500 years, when God called Abraham to this promised land, 
when Isaac, the son of promise, was born, and then when he was an adult, and Abraham was called by God and tested by God to offer up Isaac, it was at this very same place. This ground is holy ground. When I did Troy and Ashton's wedding a few years ago back at San Clemente State Park campgrounds, and we were there on the dirt, and I said, this ground's been here for thousands of years, and who knows what it's seen in thousands of years. But I'm telling you today, it's holy ground. Because you guys are joined in matrimony before the Lord today. And they were. It was a beautiful wedding. Well, this is a higher level holy ground. Because this is where Abraham went to offer up Isaac. This is where God provided the sacrifice instead of Isaac. And this is where David... How many times did we see anyone in the book of Judges be told to build an altar? It's been a long time since God told anyone to build an altar. Now, we're in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're altar builders. And suddenly, God says to David, hey, build an altar. And David obeyed. And he built the altar at the same place where Abraham was going to offer up Isaac. That's, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, WG. And he built that altar. And he made the sacrifice, and God accepted the sacrifice, just like when Abraham took the ram instead of his son, and God accepted the sacrifice. And then at the same holy ground, a thousand years later, at the appeal of crucify, crucify, the Romans, well, the temple guard, in agreement were with permission of the Romans, crucified Jesus at the same spot. These are thousand-year increments. Abraham, 2000 B.C., David, 1000 B.C., and Jesus Christ, A.D., on your dominion, year of the Lord. This is holy ground. This is the gospel in this text. When David built this altar, he's built an altar a thousand years in advance where Christ will be crucified on the cross for our sins. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a typology. David's a type of Jesus, except David wasn't the one crucified or executed on this altar. David would explain to us Psalm 22 and show us what the view looked like for Jesus on the cross. But here, what a holy moment. And God brought fire down. How often does that happen? I mean, you're like, Elijah's a couple hundred years away. Like, can you imagine David, he's, you know, he's elder, you're just like, whoa, you know, like assisted living just got more exciting. <laughs> Memory care just got an upgrade. You know, they bring in entertainment all the time to memory care, right? I see it all the time. I'm, not, I'm being facetious, but I'm being truthful. This will snap you out of a stubborn, obstinate doldrum in your 80s right here. It is a wake-up call. And David received it. And David made this offering. And he said, I'll not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. And there is nothing more costly than Christ on the cross for us. And yes, salvation is free through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of God. Eternal life, Romans 6.23. But it costs us everything. Because Jesus said, if anyone come after me, they must deny themselves and pick up their cross and die to themselves daily. See, again, it's, it's that element of compounding elements of sacrifice. A cheap gospel never transforms anybody. Some people hear the gospel of grace, and it doesn't change their life. But some people hear the gospel of grace, and they'll lay down their life in a very short period of time after believing and receiving Christ. Yes, salvation is free, but it costs God the most expensive gift imaginable, his son. And it's not to be lightly esteemed by those who respond to him, but to be received with joy, 
humility, gratitude, and realize what it says in Romans 12, to not be conformed by this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind that we may prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. We sang that song with Danny Donnelly tonight. That's on my notes, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be transformed, which is our reasonable service. See, we're exhorted to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Christ is a sacrifice that saves us, but then we're told after 11 chapters of all that God's done for us in Romans, now present yourself a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. And so study church history and study people who have been all in with Jesus for 2,000 years and see what they gave as a living sacrifice and be inspired. I've never been that inspired by theological books, but I've always been very inspired by biographical books. When Jennifer was reading uh, Gopher's wife's book on now I know, how I know God answers prayer, I was like, oh, I read that book years ago. Jennifer's like, really? I was like, yeah, I read that book a long time ago. She's the wife of the missionary, 1910 to 1920, China. Wow, what a story she could tell us when we get to eternity. It's an amazing sacrifice. It's a type of what Christ would do for us. And David said, I'll not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. And then we're told that that other place of worship in Gibeon has now completely shifted. And now the worship is harmonized. The ark, the altar, it's all there in Jerusalem now. Which just goes to show that when we humble ourselves and repent and we do what's right with God and we make things right, there's going to be a good ending coming from it. And we put ourselves, as even Danny Donnie was praying earlier, that we put ourselves in a place, no matter how defeated we feel, when we, when we just let God heal us and we, we do that work, we, we receive that work and then do what he's calling us to do and go forward. Man, there's just a blessing there. The blessing is so great for David in this next chapter that I saw things in this text I've never seen in 33, 35 years of pastoring. Because I've always thought that David wasn't allowed to build the temple, and he wasn't. But wouldn't you know, he was the first one to make an offering on the altar of the temple. It's pretty special. See, David is a worshiper and lived a hard, difficult life. Sacrifice, sacrifice, worshiper. Solomon was a man of peace and a builder, and lived a peaceful life, and then a compromising life. David built the altar. Solomon built the temple. Chapter 22, we read on. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. See, it's a, that, don't let that chapter vision throw you off. This is the connection of the thought process. So, the, you know, the angel put the sword back in the sheath. It's, wow. And then then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens, that is the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and the bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death. Oh, one of my new favorite verses. We just saw it for all you 
Young people, you can join us too. But everyone over 50, listen closely. So David made abundant preparations for his death, before his death. So David made abundant preparations before his death. So David made abundant preparations before his death. So I ask all of you who know you're in the second half, what are your abundant preparations that you're making before your death for the kingdom of God? I was talking with Roger Wing today. He used to be on staff together at Calvary, Costa Mesa. He needed a referral for someone that wants to be a chaplain with HBPD. And I said, so what are you doing in the fourth quarter? And it went silent. I thought, oh, maybe that was a little, little, little too much for Roger Wing. I said, well, Roger, it could be second half. You might live to be 120 years. So what are you doing in the second half? And he chuckled. Yeah, brief conversation. And he said, well, I'm just, I'm retired, but I'm just pressing on going forward. And I'm just looking going forward. I'm like, oh, yeah, always forward for sure. I said, but don't look over your shoulder because if you do, you'll see me right there trucking behind you. And we laughed, and I said, I love you. And he's like, oh, okay. And then we hung up. (laughs) Hey, Roger, don't look over your shoulder, man. WG is like trucking like a marathon. We're in high gear. Got a high leg kick going right now. David made abundant preparations before his death. If you are a naughty senior citizen, I might say like as a child to a parent, adult child, you need to write 10 sentences of this. We used to make our kids write sentences sometimes. Like, I'll respect my mother, or I'll take out the trash, I'll do my chores. This is a good one if you're being punished as a senior citizen. Because it'll make you think about what you're doing and why. Isn't that when you make your kids write sentences when they're younger, why you did it? Make them think about it? This is a good sentence to say over and over, so David made abundant preparations before his death. What kind of preparations? I had a conversation yesterday with someone who has an elderly relative. They are quite stubborn. They have someone dying or someone that's not in good health that appears to be in the final season of their life. And the spouse that's stubborn doesn't seem able to deal with it too well. And there's now the adult kids are all involved and it's stressful. And, you know, there's pensions and there's... New medical bills and all this stuff that just gives you a rash on your neck because it's so stressful. Dying is never easy, even when all the legal documents are in place, and it is extremely hard and difficult when they aren't. Most people are not prepared to step into eternity legally with clarity for the people they're leaving behind. So we've covered this a lot lately, but just make sure you are. Make life easier for the people that love you. As Jim Gallagher's mom is about to step into eternity, Jimelo, the one thing Hannah said to me on Monday, well, at least you had everything, they put everything in order legally like five months ago. So everything will just run itself, like a trust will run itself. You know, you, you step into eternity, then the trust is the law, and it runs itself. It makes it so much easier for loved ones, because loved ones are grieving, they're heartbroken, and the last thing they do is to have confusion over who receives the body from the morgue what we do with the body, who handles the the trust and the estate, who's the successor trustee, who are the beneficiaries. Very few people are prepared to step into eternity, have have prepared before their death, made preparation for their death practically. So if you just had a basic legal thing together for just even saying what you want with your life, if you don't own anything, at least write a letter saying, hey, cremate me and Bury me two miles off the sea of Huntington Pier because I love the north side to serve. Do something. Make it clear. 
That's someone who's looking in front of them, oh, this is my plan if I step into eternity. Oh, David made abundant preparations before his death. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to Dave Ramsey website. It's $99. I don't know what I'm doing. Uncle Ernie's a lawyer. Maybe he'll give me free advice or something. We'll figure it out. But then some people think ahead, okay, the next stage is think like, well, what I really want to do is I step into eternity. What, what I, okay, let's build some wealth for the family so when they bury me, because burying someone costs about 15 to 20 grand, depending on how you do it. My mom had a hidden account with $14,000 in it that none of us knew about until she stepped into eternity. But we had the, I never went on her banking until she stepped into eternity. We had all the codes, went in there, look at this, 14 grand sitting in a savings account. My Catholic mom knew how much it cost to bury her. Right to the plane tickets to fly to Cleveland and put her in the grave at St. Anne's Cemetery. And wouldn't you know, 14 grand was almost exactly what we needed for everybody and everything. So it's one thing to just kind of be ready this way, but to be ready in a bigger picture like, hey, I'm not going to put this on my son, Joe. He's already got a lot taken care of his dad. This is in order. This is the way it is. Here's the deed to the plot for the burial next to my siblings. It was all there. So you got someone looking in front of them, and you got someone looking ahead. My mom was looking ahead. You know, the house had done all these things. She took good care of her house. She said, Debbie Bryson's a realtor. She's the best realtor in North County, and she was and is. It all went according to plan. There could be contention over who the realtor is. My mom, I said, Mom, you need to write a note saying who the realtor is to sell your house. She did. End of story. Never became an issue. It was brought up in a family meeting. Well, I don't like Debbie. I'm like, well, she, Mom's got a note right here that says Debbie's a realtor. Sit down. Mom looked ahead, and she had a plan to take care of her kids and ultimately pass on wealth even to her grandkids that she loved so much. But, you know, I've been thinking about this. David looked even farther ahead, and this is what I want you to get tonight on this. David looked so far ahead, he wasn't just looking in front of him or ahead of him. He was doing that rare thing that very few people do, and it's maybe 3% of the population, so listen closely. He wasn't just looking ahead. He was looking around the corner. David was looking around the corner. He was looking around the corner thinking about his death and how he was preparing for it. And the way he was preparing for it is he was building economic wealth for his son to advance the kingdom of God once he was in eternity. Now, I've talked to some of you in this church, and you have done the exact same thing. Some of you in this church, you may not have a lot of money. You might have a lot of money. Some of you have sold properties, and we've given it all the missions. You know that. I know that. We all know that between each other. And so you have all that eternal fruit going. But some of you in your things, you have a plan and your trust and your wills that when you have an eternity, it's going to go toward the kingdom this way. And good for you. There's two elements to David preparing for his death. One is the practical financial things for his son Solomon to build the temple. David gave his personal wealth to build the temple. You need to know that. He wasn't just, it wasn't just national wealth. He gave his personal wealth to build this temple. He built up wealth. The wealth... I'm sure he had an element of interest and compounding elements to make it grow. And he set his son up to run the kingdom of David and to advance the kingdom of God. That's what he did. He wasn't just looking in front of him. He wasn't just looking ahead. He was looking around the corner for the kingdom. For what the kingdom would do with his wealth through his descendants when he's in eternity. That's a powerful witness because David could testify, we already know, you can't take it with you. And Solomon would say a generation later, you know, the problem about having a ton of money is you leave it behind and your knucklehead kid wastes it all. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2. And Rehoboam did waste it all. They went from gold shields to bronze shields to like bankruptcy. (laughs) But David gave it to the kingdom of God. Not just in front of you. Oh, this is is what I want want you to bury me. Not just ahead of you. This will take pressure off your lives. I've set this up this way. Love you guys. I want to put a burden on you when I'm in eternity. But around the corner, not only when I'm gone, that all this is covered for you, but this is what I want you to do with eternity. And you know, I still send money to my mom's school, her alma mater. She never told me to do that. I just like to give money to Beaumont School for Girls because my mom went there for 12 years. And when we went back for the memorial, those people loved on us. And I just want the legacy of my mom's memory to continue a godly education for girls, underprivileged girls in Cleveland and surrounding areas, to go to this private Catholic school, all-girls school my mom went to, and be able to go to Ohio State and Notre Dame and these other schools and have a good chance in life, maybe a better chance in life than other people have. And at least hear the fear of the Lord while they're in school and trust that the gospel will reach them in due time and due season. David made abundant preparations before his death, and we should too. Now we read on. Then he called this Solomon, verse 6, called this for his son Solomon, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you've shed much blood on earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies all around His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him peace and quietness. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. We just read all that a couple of chapters ago. So now verse 11. Now my son, now this is the dad talking, this is the adult dad in assisted living talking to his son, his adult son. Now my son May the Lord be with you, and may you prosper. And build the house of the Lord your God, as he said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. In other words, obey the word of God. Verse 13, then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Indeed, I've taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, bronze and iron beyond measure, for it so it is abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters and all types of skillful men from every kind of work. So he gave them the wealth and the skill set of people to do it. Verse 16, of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise, begin working, and the Lord be with you. And David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is it not the Lord your God? Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore, arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Be great. WG, be great. Be your greatness. You don't need to be anyone else's greatness. Don't measure spiritual greatness by anyone else. First mistake I made in ministry. First year I was a pastor, 
Gregory was my hero, and I tried to measure myself by Gregory. Now, why would I do that? I'm inspired by Gregory. I love and respect Gregory, but I'm not Gregory, right? Be your greatness. See, I, I just, when I hear stories of people who confess Christ being obstinate and stubborn as they get older, it makes me cringe. And that's why I'm just going to keep exhorting you almost every service. Don't be that person. Find another gear. Find another gear. Crank it up. Roger Wing, I'm running toward the finish. I'm like, well, don't look over your shoulder because I'm right behind you. Find another gear. Whatever greatness is with you and the Lord, however young you are tonight, which is good for you. It's good for you. His thoughts for you are to give you a future and a hope. Not of evil, but to bless you and give you a future and a hope. Young people, you need to know that. But if you're older, do not be stubborn and obstinate. Look for what greatness is for you with the Lord. There's a greatness for you with the Lord. The great basketball coach, John Wooden, just defined success being the best you can be. He didn't expect all those teams to win all those national championships. He just expected them to give their best effort and practice and be ready to play their games. And in so doing, he won 10 titles in 12 years. Whatever the greatness is that we can have with the Lord in whatever season we're in, we want to pour it on and pour everything we have in toward that. Because we want to be found on the day of the Lord, being fully all that we're meant to be in the Lord on that day. And David gave Solomon the keys, who's much younger than him, obviously a generation behind him. And David, David said, may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding to build this temple. And he did. And Solomon knew when the Lord asked him, what do you seek? What should I give you? He said, I'll take wisdom and understanding. But you know, you might miss the real key thing to all of this in this chapter. David said in verse 19, now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. That was the secret of David's greatness. How many times we read, David inquired of the Lord, David sought the Lord. Whenever he was approved by the Lord, he received reproof, he received correction, he made it right and just went forward. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. That's the key to greatness with the Lord. Wisdom and understanding is great. And it's great if you can give your offspring temporal wealth, but it's better if you can give them spiritual wisdom. Because spiritual wisdom will always profit. Temporal wealth is always temporal wealth. Spiritual wisdom. And it's interesting because in Solomon in his life, at the end of his life when he wrote Proverbs, he talks about, you know, my father said to me, my son, you know, do this and do that. If you read Proverbs and realize how many times he talks about his father, he's talking about David. But we so associate with Solomon with wisdom and understanding, but we associate David with the heart for God and the passion for God and the love for God, and rightfully so. Closing thought on all this. The central place of worship was unified in Jerusalem, and this is where they are. There's going to be a temple built here. The Lord's going to come and have it the praise of his people. The, the altar's already built. It's all going to happen in the next generation. But you know what's amazing to me? A thousand years later, when Jesus came, and then the day of Pentecost came, that the early church is there in that temple courtyard meeting in fellowship, in love, in unity, the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread, fellowship and prayer, they're in the same place. The same holy ground is where the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. 
This same holy ground is where the great commission goes forth from. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This same holy ground is where the great commission began. And right here tonight on May 2nd, 2023, it's where it continues to extend 2,000 years later. This was their generation for greatness. This is our time for greatness. Not of men or women, but with the Lord. Find your greatness and settle for nothing less because you will see me in eternity and I will see you there too. And we'll be what we'll be and we'll be done and there's no coming back.